Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called Mystery, Not Magic. It's based upon the lectionary readings for February 4th, 2018. There are some weeks when the lectionary readings resonate with my everyday life in ways that feel serendipitous and lovely. And then there are weeks when I sit down with the readings and think, you've got to be kidding me. This week has been one of those. On Wednesday night, I found out that a dear friend, an apparently healthy wife and mother in her mid-forties, collapsed at work and died before her husband and daughters could even make it to the hospital to say goodbye. This is the second sudden cardiac death in my friendship circle in two years. Two weeks before that, our puppy, seven months old, caught what looked like a cold, started having seizures, and died five days later of viral encephalitis. Meanwhile, our 15-year-old son is now approaching month five of a nonstop headache that spikes into migraines, keeps him nauseous, dizzy, and home from school, and stumps his physicians. Should I go on? There's my mother, who's steadily losing her hearing. My mother-in-law, whose severe diabetes might soon cost her a leg. My daughter, who continues to battle anxiety and depression. My husband's patients, who crowd his ER daily with all manner of painful and frightening illnesses. My fellow parishioners, friends of friends, acquaintances of acquaintances, and folks on weekly prayer lists who continue to hope and wait for healing. And then there is this week's lectionary reading from the Gospel of Mark, in which Jesus goes to Simon's house, learns that Simon's mother-in-law is sick, and heals her instantly. But that's not all. Mark goes on to report that as word spreads of the miraculous healing, the whole city gathers outside Simon's door, because they need miracles too. So Jesus cures many who are sick with various diseases and casts out many demons. And then, following a night of prayer, he travels throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message and casting out demons. I'll be honest, right now this gospel passage feels cruel. Or if not downright cruel, then at least inaccessible. What are we supposed to do with Jesus' healing stories, here, today, now? Is it just me, or have things changed rather drastically since he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, ushering in God's kingdom with all manner of miracles, miraculous signs and wonders. Where has all the magic gone? The problem with miracles, Barbara Brown Taylor writes so aptly, is that it is hard to witness them without wanting one of your own. Every one of us knows someone who is suffering. Every one of us knows someone who could use a miracle. But miracles are hard to come by. And so we theorize, theologize, and spiritualize. God is using this sickness to build your character. He's preparing you for something great. Satan is testing you. Stay strong. You need to have more faith. Maybe there's secret sin in your life. Have you tried confession? You should have so-and-so pray for you. He or she seems to have a direct line to God. God's timing is different from ours. Just be patient. Have you tried fasting? Send me, my church, my ministry, money, and God will heal you. Besides being insensitive and hurtful, what these claims and admonitions do is encourage us to assume that health wholeness, and comfort are the norms we should expect to experience in this life. Everything else by this accounting, physical pain, emotional pain, chronic illness, and untimely death, just to name a few examples, is an aberration. No wonder people flock to churches that promise prosperity, healing, and happiness Sunday after Sunday. Why not grab hold of the magic if it's ours to claim? Why not hunger for spectacle? Don't get me wrong, I love many of the healing stories in the Gospels. I love the power and compassion with which Jesus touches the sick and the suffering, restoring them to their families, their communities, and their vocations. 
but sometimes I wish that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had included a few less dramatic stories in their books, too. Did Jesus ever, for example, visit a feverish woman, take her hand, and offer only the comfort of his presence? No cure. Did he ever tell a chronically ill child, I can't take away your pain, but I love you, and I'll try my best to help you bear it? Did he ever encounter an unclean spirit he didn't or couldn't cast out? Did he ever sit in the dark with a profoundly depressed man? Just sit. Did he ever keep vigil at a deathbed and cry with the family as they said goodbye? No resurrection, just tears. We don't know the answer to these questions, but we do know that the Gospels only record about three dozen of Jesus' miracles altogether. In this week's story, the whole city came to Jesus and he healed many, not all. Though the crowds continued to look for him the morning after he healed Simon's mother-in-law, he left them unhealed and skipped town. In short, Jesus only healed a small number of people in one tiny part of the world before his death. He hardly rid the world of disease and despair, and unlike us, he never glamorized healing. If anything, he seemed embarrassed by the attention his miracles garnered, as if they were beside the point. Most of the time, he told people to keep their healings and exorcisms quiet. So then, I wonder if we're the ones who've turned Jesus into a magician. Maybe, if we looked more closely, we'd find a Messiah who is much more mysterious, more elusive, more subtle, more quiet. Who, for example, is the Jesus of verse 35 in this week's story? The Jesus who sought deserted places, who prayed in the dark, who hid from his disciples such that they had to hunt for him. This isn't the Jesus of the faith healers and the prosperity preachers, but he is the Jesus of the Gospels. When my son first started having headaches last October, I prayed every single day for God to heal him. I prayed for wisdom for his pediatrician and neurologist. I prayed for his acupuncturist's hands as that healer administered the needles. I prayed over every dose of every medicine my son swallowed. Okay, who am I kidding? I still pray just like that. I love my son and I can't stop hoping that God will grant us a miracle. Likewise, I've prayed for years now for my daughter's emotional and psychological healing. With words, without words, beyond words, these days I go over to a side chapel in our church every Sunday morning during communion, and I light two candles, one for my son and one for my daughter. The lighting is a gesture of faith, maybe, of hope, but it's also a gesture of surrender and exhaustion, as in, I just don't know what words to use anymore. I've got nothing left. Please let these tiny lights be my prayers. I'm learning, slowly and painfully, to live in the mystery that is the already and the not yet. Yes, the kingdom of God has come, and its inbreaking during Jesus' time on earth was marked by all kinds of signs and wonders. I believe this, and yet, no, those signs and wonders are not my daily reality. Someday, somehow, all will be well, but all is not well here and now. So the great task, the great sorrow, the great calling, the great journey, is to live graciously and compassionately in this vast and often terrible in-between, to offer the comfort of presence to those who suffer, to keep myself from making promises that are not mine to make, to create and to restore community, family, and dignity to those who have to walk through this life sick, weak, and wounded, without cures, and to make sure that no one who has to die, and that's all of us in the end, dies alone and unloved. For a long time, I thought that magic was hard. It's not. Magic is easy. It's the easy way out. It's mystery that's hard. Not knowing is hard. Living in the tension between the already and the not yet is hard. That mystery is where Jesus is. Let's pray for the courage to dwell there. For books this week, Dan has reviewed The Dawn of Christianity by Robert Knapp. 
In an earlier book, called Invisible Romans, the classicist Robert Knapp of Berkeley explored history from the bottom up, as experienced by the ordinary citizens of the Roman Empire, laborers, housewives, prostitutes, freedmen, slaves, soldiers, and gladiators, as opposed to the top-down history that we usually get from the perspectives of the intellectual elite and the economically powerful, who left us a literary legacy, emperors, philosophers, and senators. In this new book, he follows a similar methodology, trying to tease out what early Christianity looked like among the vast majority of the ordinary faithful as it emerged from a cultural context of Jewish monotheism and pagan polytheism. In his estimation, the highly educated elite composed but 1% of the population. There was also a semi-literate populace of artisans and merchants, and then the vast majority who were even less literate. Why would a person change allegiance from Judaism or polytheism? That sort of change would be very disruptive to families, community, and society at large. And make no mistake, Christianity demanded fundamental change in a person's supernatural allegiance. The primary path to change was some version of show me the power, that is, demonstrated access to the supernatural powers. And that's just what Jesus did. He was a prophet and also a charismatic leader, but also much more. He claimed not just to speak for Yahweh, he claimed to be one with Yahweh, a blasphemy for Jews. Jesus thus sowed seeds of hostility by claiming divine authority. In Paul's language, to the Jews he was a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. And thus a historical paradox. On the one hand, the emergent Christian message was powerfully appealing to ordinary citizens, so much so that today it is easily the largest religion in the world. On the other hand, it simultaneously attracted its fair share of critics from those same beginnings. Tacitus famously called them haters of mankind, while Pliny the Elder worried that the contagion was spreading like wildfire. After three centuries, there came a remarkable historical paradox. The greatest persecutor of, church, of the church, the Roman state, became its biggest supporter, Constantine, and the center of its ecclesiastical power, the Roman papacy. For films this week, Dan has reviewed Okja, a movie from South Korea. In the isolated mountains of South Korea, a spunky farm girl named Mija lives with her grandpa and her very big, beloved, and digitally mastered pig named Okja. Mija has lovingly cared for Okja for 10 years, and it's clear that they are close buddies. They frolic in the forest and sleep together at home. It turns out that Okja was one of 26 piglets genetically engineered by the evil Mirando Corporation and then distributed around the world in a super pig competition. Unfortunately for Mija, Okja won that contest, and now Mirando has come to reclaim Okja as the winner and take her to New York City. They have big plans for her in America, explains her grandpa. She's a celebrity. Mija will not hear of it and goes to extraordinary lengths to save her porcine pal. Tilda Swinton plays the role of the image-obsessed CEO of Mirando in his clever satire about a serious subject. Okja was named one of the top ten films of 2017 by the New York Times. Dan watched the film on Netflix streaming. And finally, for poems this week, we have Those Who Carry by Anna Kamienska. Those who carry pianos to the tenth-floor wardrobes and coffins, an old man with a bundle of wood limps beyond the horizon, a woman with a hump of nettles, a mad woman pushing a pram full of vodka bottles, they will all be lifted, like a gull's feather, like a dry leaf, like an eggshell, a scrap of newspaper. Blessed are those who carry, for they shall be lifted. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 4th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.